Welcome to the midweek edition of Legal AF Podcast. I'm Michael Popak. I'm Karen Friedman Agnifilo. And we welcome you to come and get this week's serving of legal and political analysis straight from legal practitioners Popak and KFA. We're going to dive down into two topics today. One, I hate to say it's on the front pages and it's on everybody's hearts and minds, but we're going to talk about the uh, invasion and the human rights violations in the Ukraine by Russia and by Putin. But more particularly, since we are a legal show, we're going to talk about the International Criminal Court and war crimes, which have been committed already, which we have all observed, unfortunately, on Twitter, social media, on every video feed we can find. As soon as Putin started bombing and targeting civilian sites, including the Kiev TV station this afternoon, killing five people, and the second largest city um, in Ukraine, targeting that as well, killing over 20 people. He basically committed a war crime uh, under the um, Rome Protocol that has established the International Criminal Court. We're going to talk about it. And then we're going to end the episode today with um, just... KFA and I bouncing around about what it all means when the Supreme Court decides in a recent conference earlier in the week to call up a case involving a Colorado website designer who, for religious reasons, says that she should not be compelled to create wedding um, uh, wedding um, websites for LGBTQ uh, community members that it violates her First Amendment rights and Supreme Court has framed it in a novel way, which may actually tip their hand as to how they're going to rule. And we'll talk more about that in the back end of tonight's podcast. First of all, KFA, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I spent the day in court today in the Eastern District of New York watching watching my husband, Mark Agnifilo, on trial in a pretty big federal trial. Yeah, see, that's something that other podcasts don't bring don't bring the street cred of legal AF, Ben Masalis, my co-anchor on the weekends, me, you, our day-to-day practicing attorneys, litigators, trial lawyers, and we give our opinions and our, some people like to call it speculation, but based on a seasoned approach from years and years and years of experience, and you live and breathe it every day, even when you're not on legal AF, even when you're not in the office, because your husband is a well-known and successful uh, criminal defense lawyer the way you are. And so that was great that you got to, um, I mean, I'm sure you didn't just watch, what, what were you able to do today? So he likes me to come to the big moments in his his trial to give him real feedback. And he knows I will give him real feedback. That's right. So uh, today there was the cross-examination of the main cooperator. This is a, um, a case involving um, uh, Goldman Sachs and uh, an individual named Roger Ang and a 1MDB Malaysia uh, fund where the allegation is that they were bribing everyone from um, 
from the, the prime minister to the king to just everybody under the sun. And, and some pretty big names are coming up during this trial. Uh, I've heard Donald Trump, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, Chris Christie, um, Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, th this this cooperator is, is You're quite the name dropper on today's well, podcast. It's, it's, it's the cooperator. It's yeah. stunning. It's yeah. stunning. The people he's implicating as being involved in this massive uh, bribe scheme of people who are either um, involved in it or representing that him or palling around with him. He, he's a big name dropper. So yeah. it's, it's very interesting. Well, one name it doesn't sound like he dropped is, is Putin, Vladimir Putin. And that's somebody who we're now going to talk about in our discussion of what is the International Criminal Court? Where does it come from? What kind of jurisdiction does it have? And can it actually arrest and prosecute and put on trial Vladimir Putin for being the person most responsible for the war crimes that we are watching unfold, unfortunately, in the Ukraine as that or in Ukraine. I'm sorry, I keep calling it the Ukraine because I am Ukrainian American and for the longest time it was the Ukraine. But since its independence, it's just Ukraine um, as it fights for its survival and eventual membership, thank God, in the EU, which it looks like it's being fast tracked to do. And where does this all start? Um, uh, and let me talk about let me let me frame it, and then uh, you and I, KFA, can um, can dive in. The International Criminal Court's not to be confused with any segment of the United Nations. The United Nations has its own tribunals, um, not really going to criminal issues. But the International Criminal Court, while it cooperates and collaborates in, at times with the UN, is independent completely from the United Nations. It does not take a vote of the United Nations to make a referral to the um, ICC, which is how it's referred to, in order for it to be animated, in order for it to have life. If that were the case, then Russia would never be the subject of a prosecution because it has, as most people know now, ultimate veto power on the Security Council to veto any resolution against it. You'd think, well, don't they have to be um, recused? How are they voting on themselves? And the answer is no, the way the UN is set up. They can they can actually veto a um, a resolution, uh, you know, uh, condemning them for for bombing civilians in the Ukraine. But that's not the International Criminal Court that we're talking about, which was uh, formed in in the 1990s, and it it the foundation document that created it is something called the Rome Protocol, and now there's over 125 countries who have signed on to the Rome Protocol and have that have passed it by resolution or otherwise, that court sits in The Hague um, in, in the Netherlands. And it is headed by, um, you know, there's a, there's a president and a vice president, but there's an office of, of the prosecutor. And the lead prosecutor, uh, Karim Khan, has already announced that he is opening an investigation into whether war crimes have been committed and other atrocities have been committed by Putin. The other interesting aspect of the International Criminal Court is that it is funded by these 125 or so member states, member nations. It um, Ukraine is not a member state, but has um, signed on to the Rome, uh, the Rome Accord um, as recently as uh, 1999 and 2000, and then again in 2013 and 2014. So it is, even though it's it's a non technically a non-member, it does have the rights to to trigger investigations and prosecutions under the International Criminal Court. Russia, 
of course, is not a member of the ICC, um, which makes the uh, arrest warrant and the execution of that arrest warrant and who's going to put a black bag over Putin's head and be able to get him over to the ICC. We'll talk about that in the back end of this segment because they are not, and I'm just going to make this clear up front, they, they are not by the Rome Protocol. The ICC is not going to try Putin in abstentia, meaning he has to be present in order for this trial to take place. They have some, some protocols for not having the defendant present, but um, not in the case of a full-blown trial. So they're, they're to, Putin's going to have to be caught and captured and brought before the tribunal, um, the ICC, in order for them to prosecute. And then the other interesting thing about it is um, from a jurisdictional standpoint, like what are the crimes? And right on the books of the Rome Protocol, the Rome Court, is targeting intentionally civilians, which is exactly what we're watching happen right now as Putin, a frustrated Putin, thought he'd be taking Kiev in the first day or two, has been frustrated and now has decided he's going to go to the most heinous set of atrocities and start just firing on civilians, including, I don't know if you saw this today, um, Karen, they bombed the Holocaust. I mean, on purpose, this is not an accident. Um, there is a Holocaust uh, memorial, very famous one, Babin Yar in Ukraine, which is a memorial to all of the U Jewish Ukrainians and there were millions of them, um, definitely hundreds of thousands into the millions that were that were exterminated during the genocide of the Holocaust. They literally went out of their way to bomb that. I mean, and the Freedom Square. So what, what's your takeaway from ICC and Putin and war atrocities, Karen? So this whole Ukraine uh, situation and this war against them is, is fascinating for many, many reasons. I mean, it's taken on the hearts and minds. It's certainly, it's certainly um, President Zelensky is, is one over the hearts and minds of the world in a way that I don't think Putin predicted. And I think uh, it, it wasn't that way with Crimea. It hasn't been that way with other, other sort of other times in, in recent history when Putin has done what Putin does. But this one in particular, I think he miscalculated. And I think that's significant for, from the perspective of the ICC, because the ICC had an investigation open involving Putin that, that they pressed pause on, I think in 2014, uh, due to lack of funding. And I think part of that is there just wasn't the will. But this one in particular, I mean, in the middle of it, during it, there was this announcement that, you know, there's reasonable cause to believe that war crimes have been committed. We're opening up an investigation. And I think I think the fact that that this really does have worldwide bipartisan support was is is a major factor here in why they're they're going forward. The ICC. Uh, the International Criminal Court is is commonly referred to, I think, sometimes as the, the War Crimes Tribunal, or sometimes people say the Hague. You know, the the ICC is the court, but it's it's referred to differently depending on on who you talk to colloquially, and it's made up of of prosecutors who go there for a period of time and and conduct these trials. I know several prosecutors who were seconded uh, to the Hague to um, prosecute war crimes over the years. And it's, what, is, it's what is that? What does that mean, Karen? Seconded. So it means that uh, it means that um, 
in in the case that that I'm thinking of, in, in the individuals that I'm thinking of, there were prosecutors who worked for the Manhattan DA's office who applied for the job, and they were um, they were accepted for the job. And Cy Vance, the district attorney, permitted them to go and prosecute war crimes and and for a period of time, for a period of several years, as as a as a public service and uh, before they would come back and be a prosecutor at the Manhattan DA's office. Yeah, that's, and, very, that's very interesting that that happened. And they ended And do you know which one, which war tribunals, war crime tribunals they actually worked on? It was the, the ones that I'm thinking of were uh, regarding the um, Yugoslavia, the, the, the various trials involving right. Yugoslavia. And there Milosevic, were several. Right. There were several. And these are long trials. These aren't trials like sometimes, you know, like my husband's trial is going to be probably six weeks, maybe two months, which is also considered a long trial. Some of these trials that go on at the ICC in The Hague, they go on for years. They could go on for many, 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 many years. And these are these are trials that don't have a jury. Instead, it's several judges. I think it's I believe it's three judges and they present evidence and it's it's a real trial. Why do they with- go on? For, let's say, let's say Putin, let's say I could think of a couple of countries that have the ability and the desire to put a black bag over Putin's head. Let, let's say that happens and somehow they are able to pick him up and bring him to the Netherlands um, and put him on trial and put him in maybe in a box like the trials of Nuremberg when the um, when the Nazi war criminals were picked up and tried by primarily American judges for and former American judges, but other judges from around the world participated in that world as well. And they bring them on and it's all about, well, maybe they string together a bunch of things, but it's certainly all about what's happening now in Ukraine. Why would it take a number of years to try that kind of case against them? I think because it's so significant to bring a case. I I think there's only been about 45 individuals who have ever been prosecuted by um, the ICC. And it's a very it's a significant thing to accuse someone of genocide or accuse someone of war crimes or to accuse someone of crimes against humanity. Targeting civilians here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so those are that that's a whole pattern of conduct. You know, you have to prove, for example, that it wasn't an accident. You know, I think they bombed a preschool today that was being used as a shelter and people died. And, and I think, you know, one of the things you have to prove is that it was not an accidental, you know, that it was a targeting of, of civilians. Um, that's part of it. And part of it is because you, you really do have to show that there is this long term, uh, you know, these long standing sort of um, acts of aggression, another term of art, a crime of aggression, um, you know, that are being committed. Uh, by these these governments, you know. So, I mean, this is a, a, a major world leader, and you're going to want to put on evidence that this isn't just, you know, he's going to have all kinds of defenses and his own justification about why. I had he- no knowledge that the TV station in the middle of Kiev during its regular broadcasting, right before an invasion of armed tanks, you know, a whole group of 40 
Thanks for coming. I had no idea they were going to. That was a total accident. We were aiming for the park behind it. Yeah, I, 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 well, I he's see also also think about it, the language that he's using. It's a peacekeeping mission, right? He has justification. He believes this is not an act of war and that this is completely legitimate and that he's permitted to do this. And, you know, you've got you've got um, the Belarusians sort of, you know, underscoring that by kind of giving aid to to Putin, right? That this is yeah. okay. And so, you know, they have their own version of facts that you're going to have to disprove um, to prove that this was uh, was an act of war. In the beginning of this, about a week ago, I was noticing that the um, that that Putin's military, they were allowing reporters from CNN to videotape them. And I thought with the tanks, I mean, they're literally videotaping them going in. And I was thinking, how could they possibly be allowing this? I mean, allowing it's, it's, American journalists to be embedded yeah, with the Russian military, right, because it's right. so clear that that that's proof of, of what they're doing. But in my mind, it just goes to show how delusional they are. And they yeah. don't realize that they genuinely believe they are justified in doing this and that they're not doing anything wrong. I think they think they're going to intimidate the world and show how strong they are. And I think they really miscalculated that the entire world would turn against them yeah. in, in doing this and support uh, support Ukraine. Oh, they, they have accomplished Putin's accomplished more in gaining national stature, EU admission um, and potentially NATO admission for Ukraine than than they ever could have done in the next five. He collapsed five years, accelerated five to ten years. The Germans who were sitting on the fence with, well, we'd rather not. They're now <laughs> let them into the EU. That everything. sounds right. Yeah. Everything. So, you know, he really galvanized in, in that way. And the one last thing before we leave the International Criminal Court, which we will follow as this prosecutor, Kareem Khan, opens his investigation and Karen and I will report back on developments that are publicly announced related to that, or if anybody from the Manhattan DA's office goes over to assist in the prosecution of, uh, of Putin, you'll let us know about that too. The, um, the last thing I want to leave it on is, as Karen and I have alluded to or implied, people are prosecuted by the ICC, not nation states. So it's not going to be um, Russia that's on trial. It is the person, human being, most responsible for the war crime or the atrocity or whatever the ground, the jurisdictional ground is. In this case, obviously, it's Vladimir Putin. That's going to be the defendant on the other side of the V. Well, Puck, how can yeah. the ICC have jurisdiction over Putin if uh, he's not a member state? Yeah, that's a good question. I looked into that. It, apparently, you know, it's similar to our analysis that we use in American court system for how a defendant can be dragged in to, you know, whether it's criminal or or state under a jurisdiction or a civil under a jurisdictional analysis, if they've done things to, I hate to say it, to target somebody or injure somebody in that state or that country, that's enough of a jurisdictional hook. So even though he's not, his country is not a member state of the ICC, he has done a war of aggression against a member state and therefore has given the prosecutor a, a proper jurisdictional hook to drag yeah, I him think, in. I think um, I think there are certain crimes that they have jurisdiction over him on and certain yeah. ones that they don't. So I think you are exactly right with the war crimes. Um, if there were civilian intentionally against civilian targets, uh, crimes against humanity, like rapes and murders, et cetera, uh, genocide. However, 
there is the crime of um, aggression, which is a new crime that was added to the ICC and the Rome statute in 2018. And this is a new crime that apparently he cannot be prosecuted for unless uh, unless the um, unless the United Nations Security Council um, refers that to the ICC, which is why the veto you were talking about earlier is so important and so significant. So I think the crime, and I think crime of aggression is, is probably the thing that he so clearly has committed. It's, it's easier to prove. But I think that's the, the issue here is um, in order to get jurisdiction over him and be able to prosecute him, they want, they're going to have to have clear violations of war crimes and, and the civilian targets, I think, are going to be the ones uh, and the ones that are um, are going to be key to the success in that in that prosecution. Yeah, that's a very good observation about and then tying it back to the UN and which sometimes unfortunately becomes sort of a feckless entity because it is so tied up in knots with the way their governing documents give to the superpowers, especially Russia, veto power while they sit on the Security Council, which is really the leading entity within the UN. It really controls everything that's important to anybody, especially when it comes to these kind of issues. So um, more, more to come. Unfortunately, I am sure there's going to be more counts of war crimes that we're, we're going to watch unfold on our nightly news or throughout the day. And then uh, KFA and I will report back on that and give our analysis and our um, good faith observations from our experience about what's happening. Let's move on to our last part of our um, midweek edition of Legal AF. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court of the United States, SCOTUS, and what on February 22nd it decided to do at one of its conferences where it decides which cases it's going to hear for the remainder of the term. And they have now decided after you know much speculation that they're going to hear the case that sounds innocuous on its face when I give you the title or the, the, uh, the plaintiffs and the defendants, 303 Creative LLC versus Colorado or the Colorado Secretary of State. Sounds pretty innocent until you get down to what are the fundamental constitutional issues that are in play and why has this newly constituted six to three supermajority Supreme Court decided to take this case at this time. Now, that this particular case is arises out of a anti-discrimination law in the state of Colorado. Uh, Colorado rightly has on its books something that says you cannot discriminate. You can't be a bigot. You can't discriminate uh, against people because of their ethnicity or their or their race or their, in this case, their gender or sexual orientation or their LGBTQ status. You cannot do that. You can't say you're going to do that. It's not a First Amendment issue. You, you can't advertise. No gays allowed, just like you can't advertise. No Jews allowed, which unfortunately was in this country in the 1930s and 40s and even earlier than that in, in Miami Beach. Um, there were signage in hotels that said that. Um, and you can look that up. So you can't do that anymore. And the, the foundation for that is the First Amendment, which has two clauses. It has the freedom of speech clause, which we'll talk about at length today. And it has the, the free exercise of religion clause. And the owner of this web design company who doesn't want to make wedding websites for gay people, basically, you know, uh, but she'll do other work for them. Apparently, she just doesn't want to just doesn't want to sanction their marriage because she thinks that's only between heterosexuals, uh, well, ma male and female heterosexuals, actually. Um, and so, 
she, but not really her, a church group, a church-based group that's collecting a lot of money and is publicly funding the lawsuit in order to change the law and have it look like what they think the Bible world should look like, which is, you know, inconsistent with the Supreme Court. Fortunately for them and unfortunately for the progressives that follow Legal AF and, and KFA and me, they have the numbers. And so there's a precedent from 1990 uh, that talks about um, when governments, if they're being even handed on how they regulate in this area, can it's, it's OK under the First Amendment, the Constitution. And there is a recent case, though, coming out of Colorado um, that just happened when they didn't quite have the numbers, when um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still around in 2019, in which a baker didn't want to bake a cake for a gay wedding, also in Colorado, against that same statute. And there, that Supreme Court came close to addressing whether he had a First Amendment right to basically be a bigot, but stopped short because they had a technical procedural issue about whether the agency responsible for enforcing the law properly gave proper credit to his alleged religious view when they, you know, um, you know, find find him for not baking cakes came close. And so as soon as they had the numbers and there was a and when there was a new test case, what did the uh, Supreme Court do? Let's let's now decide Colorado's statute again under these facts, under the web design. Now, the one thing before I turn it over to KFA, the good news is the newest justice. One good news is the newest justice, um, Katanji Brown Jackson, will be seated by then. And even though she's not around, may not be around for the briefing, although I think she's going to be, that doesn't matter. She can still decide the case and participate in the oral arguments and hopefully work behind the scenes in conference to shape a proper result. KFA, what do you think? Of, what's, what's going on with SCOTUS? What, what are they doing here to monkey around with First Amendment and gay rights? Well, when I first saw this case, I thought, oh, there's no way that they can't that there's no way this this has any merit whatsoever. They can't do this. But it's a very nuanced case. And I think the way they've nuanced it, uh, I think I think it's in, we're in trouble, uh, frankly. And, and I think the, the, the issue is, is that I saw that that where that's sort of interesting is that the question that is being posed is, can somebody refuse to service uh, public customers in violation of the public accommodation law based on the idea that fulfilling this would be a creative act. So, and they're saying that the creative act of fulfilling it is free speech. So I thought this was going to be an exercise of religion, First Amendment case, but it's really a free yeah. speech case because it's like- if Well, you they rejected in, that, right? They rejected they did reject that, taking correct. the case on free exercise of religion prong and they went to- First Amendment free speech. Right, because that one is, that's uh, that's why I thought initially, oh, there's no way this case. I mean, and they were smart enough to reject it on that because that's a tougher case for them. But, you know, when you think about it, it you can't, for if she if she ran a McDonald's franchise, she couldn't put a sign on the wall that says we're not going to serve LGBTQ customers because that's that's just anti discrimination. That's just or, blatant or blacks or Hispanics or, or anybody Jews else. Or, Correct. It's just right. that's just blatant discrimination. Where they are where they are making a distinction is that they don't provide a service that is um, just kind of the same for everybody. That the service they provide requires creativity 
creativity and their creativity is really their free speech and it's their first amendment right to free speech. And so what they're saying is that if I serve, if, if I serve as somebody who's gay, you're forcing me to say something that I don't want to say. And, and so they're really, it's a really a first amendment. You can't force someone free speech involves both the ability to say what you want, but also to not be forced to say things. So I think that's where it's going to be tricky. And I think that if I had to guess, I would guess that it's, uh, it's not going to go well. And, um, and that's really disappointing. Yeah. It, 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 there, what we're teaching our legal AF law students is that the way that the agenda is set by the question that's presented that the Supreme Court announces that they will be addressing on the case. They take all the briefs, they take all the issues, even issues that weren't even raised below at the appellate, at the court of appeal just below them or at the trial level, because they can they can raise any issue um, as as the ultimate um, highest authority of the land. And the way they frame that, it looks simple. It's one or two sentences, usually one sentence. But the way they write it is so is so pregnant with information about, I think, how they're going to rule and how they set it up, right? How they tilt the playing field by the way they write the question. So the question is, as written, um, while applying a public accommodation law to compel an artist to speak or to stay silent, does that violate the fir- the free speech clause of the First Amendment? I mean, the way that they set it up, it's like putting both thumbs on the scale about how they're going to rule. Because I'll, I'll do it this way. We're, we're podcasters. Karen, you're a podcaster. <laughs> That's great. We're on episode eight, but we're podcasters. Can we decide in expressing ourselves in the First Amendment, which is what we're doing every time we take this microphone, are we, can we say, oh, by the way, um, on Legal AF, um, we're, we're never going to have um, any Polish people or any, or any Black people on the show. I'm sorry, that's just you know my First Amendment right not to interview those people or talk about those issues. Am I permitted to do that in, in a state that doesn't allow, has anti-bigot or bigotry uh, law on the books or anti-discrimination law on the books? Am I allowed to do that? Today, I'm not. Yeah, I was going to say, you can't discriminate. I mean, but but what's what's interesting about this question is if, let's say it goes the way we think it's going to go, it basically says that you can, that any business that custom makes anything uh, is going to say, is going to be basically be able to discriminate. And so let's just think of a basic t-shirt company that is just makes t-shirts and let's say you order it online and there is no human creativity. Let's just say the creativity is the person who's making the t-shirt kind of, you know, putting whatever they want on a t-shirt and ordering it from a computer and it gets printed from a computer and mailed from a computer. Are they, I mean, what, how are they going to define creativity and custom made and what is, what is it? Yeah. First amendment free expression. What is expression versus it's a slippery slope that, a you're slippery identifying, slope that you're identifying so well, and where does it end? I mean, I never really thought of a website design. I'm sorry for the website designers that follow legal AF. I never really thought about it being as an overly creative process. It's not Michelangelo doing the Sistine Chapel, just as I don't think podcasting is an overly creative process. I like it. Some people seem to like our show, but you know, I'm not sure that I would put myself in the category of an artist under this, what's going to be this new Supreme Court ruling. So it's going to be heard in October. 
it sounds like you agree with me. The way they frame the issue sounds like they've already concluded, you know, they got the votes for this particular issue. It took them not one, not two, not three, but four conferences to decide to take this case up, meaning they didn't have the votes for the other three. I think you have to have four votes to pull up a case, um, if I'm getting my math right, not to decide it, just to decide whether you're going to hear the case. You need to have four sitting justices. And it sounds like they didn't have four until this last go around. Um, I can imagine who the four are. I could, I could probably, we both, all of us in legal AF land could name the four, I'm sure, that are in there. Uh, Alito, um, Thomas, um, and then either Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and or Amy Coney Barrett. I'm not sure. I'm not sure Roberts did because it's going to be sailing against recent precedent. I mean, how many, how many, how much precedent can one Supreme Court in one term try to overturn? I mean, what happened to the concept when you and I were in law school, when I thought, you know, stare decisis, the legal doctrine that, you know, precedent will be used for the, unlike other, other jurisprudence, other bodies of law around the world, legal systems around the world, that ours was based as a bedrock principle, that precedent would be used and precedent would only be overturned in extraordinary circumstances. But that's, that's, that's gone now. No precedent is safe. When, when the Supreme Court is um, has a supermajority of, of one right wing. I mean, listen, I'd like to see a supermajority of the left wing of the de- de- progressive Democrats. I'm not sure I'm going to see that in my lifetime. I'm probably not. But um, certainly in the hands of, of them, it's, it's like every harebrained idea that Clarence Thomas has ever had over the last 40 years, he's now able to execute because he's got the numbers. Um, and, and our... I hate to say it, our constitution is under assault and the constitution that I grew up with and I was taught and that I respect is under is under frontal assault by the Supreme Court. That's just my view. What do you think, Karen? I, I very much do. And w- when you think about it, and I, I was I was talking about this with with some people and and their initial reaction was, well, but, you know, what if their religion is that they don't believe in gay marriage? And, I, and I, as soon as you you transpose gay marriage for being black, being Jewish, being a woman. And I think I think that's what hits home with people when they yeah. realize, you know, enough, enough marginal, enough looking for ways to continue to marginalize uh, LGBTQ. You know, legal. It's been. It's now. You're. It's. It's a constitutional right. It's to to be able to marry who you love, and it's time to change and not go backwards in terms of marginalizing. Right. Uh, people who are already marginalized by society, and it's just Agreed. atrocious. Agreed. And 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 we're and let's be clear about what we're not saying on this show or otherwise. We're not saying that a person doesn't have a First Amendment right to express themselves in a certain way that would be considered bigoted or off-putting or off-color or improper, short of certain things that you're not allowed to say out loud. We're not saying that. You want to tell your your daughter not to marry the woman of her choice because you're a bigot. You can do it, and you're not violating any statute or law. You're allowed to, and you're. We're not talking about thought police. We're not talking about what you think in your heart of hearts and your darkest moments about people or things. We're talking about expressing it 
in your workplace or otherwise in a way that's discriminatory in violation of anti-discrimination laws that are on the books in these various cities and states or, the, or that's guaranteed by the US Constitution. That's what we're talking about. And this artistic expression exception, which it looks like the Supreme Court is considering because I hold a paintbrush, I can be a bigot. I mean, I really don't get why that yeah, that I mean, steamrolls the U.S. Constitution because I have a palette and a beret. Sorry, this is my artist no, you're ren- right. rendering you're right. of, you're of right. artists. But but in addition, think about it. She can not only does she, she, will this give her license to advertise that they do not do yes. gay weddings, which is what she wants. She could yes. also advertise. I don't do uh, interracial marriages. I won't take black customers. I, w- I mean, she could, you know, there's no end to this if well, you well, allow this. Well, let me use an example that I started with from, from Miami Beach because I lived, everybody knows I lived in Miami for 20 years and kind of got into the history down there. There in the 1930s, in sections of Miami Beach, hotels would advertise, literally hire a printer and put out an ad that they put in magazines and put on their walls in their hotel And one hotel in particular had an ad campaign that was the following. Always a view and never a Jew. You can look it up. I am not making this up. And there's a museum in Miami that actually has all these things up. So could you so so why isn't that (laughs) current Supreme Court? Why can't a hotel advertise? Hey, good news. We always have a view. We never have a Jew. And why doesn't why? Why doesn't that? satisfy. Oh, because I'm not, because they're not an artist. Okay. So the artist says, um, great news. I do, I do portraitures uh, of your favorite portrait, unless you're, you're a dirty Jew and then I'm not going to do it. That's okay. It will be after this, after they're done with this case. Right. Because they live in a hermetic, they live in a hermetically sealed world. This is, this is why I thought it was fascinating that, 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 and, and what a breath of fresh air in every way, shape and form, um, KB, KBJ is going to be when she hits the um, uh, the bench because she's the only person who's a federal public defender in the history of 230 years in the Supreme Court. Crazy statistic. Um, she's the only person other than um, Sotomayor who's a, who was a trial judge. The rest of the judges came up through either appeals or like um, Kagan kind of skipped the whole dr- uh, judge process altogether. She was a part-time solicitor general for a while and it's super bright, but she wasn't a trial judge either. So 10 year trial judge, public federal public defender, federal sentencing guidelines. As I said on the show last on this past Saturday, she has, and this is no, um, this is no uh, hyperbole. She has a more accomplished body of work than any Senator who is going to judge her for her position bar none. And yet they're going to. They are. Yeah. So that's where we are. We've uh, we've finished another midweek episode. My favorite Wednesdays are with KFA of um, Legal AF. Um, and so everybody, you'll uh, you're watching us tonight. You're going to download, hopefully, and listen to us on every place that you can download a podcast. And on Saturdays, we have the longer one hour, sometimes two hour version of Legal AF, where we wrap up the whole week's developments with my co-host, and uh, lawyer extraordinaire Ben Masalis. And we want you to tune into that also. And now we've tried a new thing, which uh, uh, we got a taste for. And I think we're going to do a lot more often. Uh, we're going to do Twitter spaces, which is sort of a real-time instantaneous, let's all jump on a, a into a room, into a digital room and 
Karen and I will talk about an issue that might have just happened 20 minutes before. We just did it for the uh, recent developments at the Manhattan DA's office, um, KFA's old stomping grounds, related to Alvin Bragg and the Trump prosecution. And we had 25,000 people that tuned in and listened to us on that. Um, and so I got I got a hankering to do more of those. What about you, KFA? Absolutely. I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I want to, we have to think of a way to end these podcasts, though, because I have to say I am so upset. Like, you know, we talked about this case, this LGBTQ case, and I'm so upset and angry because I can't believe this is where our country's headed. I, I need to I want to figure out a way to end on a high note. And I think that's why I love mailbag, because that's, oh, that's yeah. a little more. Yeah, listen, unfortunately, we don't we don't blow smoke or sunshine. And sometimes, oh. you know, Ben said to me at the end of last Legal AF, where we went over all these issues, including starting off with a discussion of what, what was happening in Ukraine and what and Zelensky and leadership and how it and and all those things. And at the end, I was, you know, kind of dour um, throughout most of the episode. And when we when we broke and doing a little post-production, Ben said, are you OK? I said, yeah, but I'm I'm really down. Yeah. about what's going on in the Ukraine. I mean, that's part of my heritage. And um, my relationship is from that region. She's from Belarus. And so, you know, it really is really hitting home and, and it's really a downer. But anyway, that's, you know, the, you know, the people we're not comedians. This is not this is not this is not a they're not tuning in for that. They're tuning in for kind of serious but collegial dissertation and respectful dissertations about what's going on in the world. So I'm glad we were able to do it today. I'm Michael Popak. I'm Karen Friedman-Agnifilo. And we'll see you next Wednesday.